Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon and welcome to this lunchtime talk here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathering here on Ghana land and to pay our respects to Ghana elders past, present and those emerging and to acknowledge that this was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you so much for joining us. My name's Lee Robb. I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I'm really thrilled to be joined by Cassia Tons, who is a finalist in the 2021 Ramsey Art Prize. And she was selected with her astonishing, detailed, and very nuanced embroidery work, which is called After, which you can see through in the gallery behind us. That gallery is a little bit too small for us all to fit within this COVID context. So we've also, Cassia has also brought in a number of, of items along the way. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Cassia. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Great, well I thought, You've had such an interesting and diverse career and practice, and it's been quite peripatetic. You have moved around a lot, and embroidery or the act of embroidery has literally come with you on that journey. And I wondered if you could maybe take us back to sort of the beginnings of your, of your career. You started studying textile design with a major in knitting. Yeah, so before studying officially though, when I was 21 is when I started embroidery, which happened very much by accident. Um, I don't think I was even aware of embroidery as a thing. And I was travelling and the first thing that I remember was meeting Bead, a bead artist in New Mexico called Eri Imamura and she was the first person I'd ever met who worked with fibre and beading and then I went further into Mexico and was mainly in the state of Oaxaca which is in central Mexico and there's a huge textile tradition there and so I saw a lot of the women embroidering and I purchased this dress which is a secondhand uh, I think it's like a probably a polyester satin communion dress and I got one spool of thread which was green and I started embroidering on the back there and it just felt like a really instant way of recording my surroundings and what was happening at the time it was very affordable. I didn't have much money to spend on materials, so threads were, yeah, very accessible. And I could transport it with me in my backpack as I was travelling around. Yeah. Oh, and then I went on to study officially because I thought that's what... Well, I was told that's what you should do. Yeah, get a degree. So you, um, you, you studied in Melbourne? I studied in Melbourne at RMIT and um, yeah, it's a very intensive and amazing course. And um, you said that going through the sort of the journey of studying and you know, 
textiles, but also the relationship to fast fashion and commerce and capitalism that actually sort of towards the end of that degree, it forced a shift in your thinking that you wanted to embrace perhaps a different way of working, a way of, you know, whether that's slow fashion or slow making or yeah. a connection to nature. Yeah, although when I was studying, there was definitely an emphasis on sustainability and environmental awareness when designing. When I actually was in the industry after graduating, the reality was there was so much pressure at the time from stockists and other people in the industry to go offshore with manufacturing, and it didn't sit well with me. I've, yeah, always bought op shop stuff and reclaimed things so I after two years I got rid of my business and everything and I made a calico dress which I wore every day for a year and embroidered onto it every day uh, as a cleansing practice from the pressures I'd felt in yeah the fashion industry yeah, that's quite quite an incredible work to make, something that I guess is uh, an act of endurance and also in thinking about textiles or, or a dress, something that you wear, something that you wear close to the body, something that can give you warmth and comfort and security, but also I guess is, is a palimpsest. It probably also absorbs, you know, some of your own, you know, body, you know, it's sort of <laughs> yeah. scent and, and, and other things. And I guess it's a really interesting way to well to think about the relationship like you said of embroidery as quite a mobile practice and the work that you applied with for the Ramsey Art Prize which is called After which as we said is through through the gallery there and, and do take another look afterwards it too is also <clears throat> excuse me a diary of sorts and I guess that dress that calico dress was was a diary um, in a way as well tracking every day the marks of every day you know that slow embroidery and then you know so maybe tell us how you came to be on this huge voyage which took you from Alice Springs to New Zealand and then back to Adelaide at a very particular time as well. You were making that work at the end of 2019 and then through what became the COVID pandemic. Yes, yeah, so movement, especially walking and embroidery have like coincided with my practice for as long as I've been making. And so the whole premise of this work is imagining a future after digital technology has collapsed and it's about re-entering the world and how sensitive we may be to certain stimulus like interacting with other people, being in the elements, our own company, and when we don't have the distractions of social media and other such things. So I felt the best way to explore that was to try and be in a digitally reduced environment. So being in the back country of New Zealand gave me that opportunity so I could really notice in my own experience um, the benefits and also what I was um, having like what I was missing from being able to interact so easily with people wherever they were in the country or in the world. 
and because you were on a, a two-month hike really through yeah. the South Islands and New Zealand and you know we're taking your backpack and camping and being totally self-reliant during the, during that time often being alone for long periods until you would meet others at another camp and sort of share share stories and so it also seems like that embroidery would was was also a, a form of collecting stories as well as you know becoming an, an act of storytelling later when you when you completed it. But tell us, give us a uh, an example of sort of a day in the life of the making of that embroidery or, or your relationship between moving, travel, and then resting and drawing and yeah. sewing. Though it changed over the two months, my and also my relationship to this piece of fabric. Sometimes it felt extraordinarily heavy to, and I often got comments from other hikers of like, oh my gosh, what on earth are you doing carrying this? Because there's a lot of ultralight hikers who carry as little as possible, and instead I had, you know, a studio on my back. And so my daily life was generally get up when the sun comes up, uh, have some breakfast, walk for like seven hours maybe, and then in the evening I would draw onto the, the fabric and stitch, like if I, because sometimes I would have heaps to add to the canvas and then I would spend time catching up because obviously drawing's a lot quicker to put down and then you're like oh my gosh why did I like commit to so much that I have to now embroider but yeah also using a white canvas and being in that environment like you know before I had a tent I had this embroidery as one of my sleeping layers because I was sleeping outside with my sleeping bag and then I had this embroidery on top of me and so I'm surprised it still resembles kind of white in the <laughs> exposed areas but that's also what I love is not being precious about because embroidery historically might have a like kind of very neat and precise and has to be done in like indoors and perfect in certain cultures and so I like having it like extreme embroidery like out in the elements yeah I love that extreme embroidery that's <laughs> definitely a new turn a new turn of phrase I think you know you you've, you've mentioned that one of the other things that drew you to embroidery is also that, that the history of embroidery and I guess a return to recovering perhaps lost skills and that you've been influenced by William Morris who was you know a sort of anti-industrialist and you know and then and then also floriography the the sort of the, the secret coded symbols um, and language of, of flowers and plants and I guess that takes us to some of the imagery in in your embroidery after. Yeah, so that is one of my favorite things about embroidery is the history of its ability to be secret and in, like have embedded little stories or nods to certain alliances when they can't be expressed overtly. And so, yeah, in terms of floriography, I really 
liked that idea because I was researching different ways of communicating throughout history before digital technology and so I really liked the idea of being able to communicate with flowers so in that piece I've got the daffodil which symbolises new beginnings on this bonnet here which also goes with after. I've got a chrysanthemum on there because I was thinking of this as a bonnet to wear for going on dates because that might be really scary in real life. And chrysanthemums symbolise devoted love, which might be a bit much for a first date. Yeah, and so, and then on the other one, I've also got the passion flower, which is faith. So it's um, faith and new beginnings of a, my vision of a utopian <laughs> future without digital technology. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's there. There, it's an incredible body of work because I think um, after was also the title of an exhibition which you had recently at the Craft ACT in Canberra, and you were saying, you know, a really interesting story about you know growing up and um, having a, a philosopher father, and a lot of the different texts that you would read included E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, which is from 1909, a sci-fi novella which imagines this underground society or group that's, you know, completely run by this human-made machine, which became even more sort of pertinent and prescient, and uh, that'll bring us to a discussion around masks as well, you know, at a time when you were making this work because it sort of foreshadowed this, you know, incredibly digitally reliant society. But, you know, the making of it, you, you wanted to separate yourself from that digital dependence but then when you came out of it you're finishing the making in, in Adelaide at a time when everyone was in lockdown and everyone was connecting socially online and you know in a, in a sort of hyper digital reality. Yeah because although I've been aware of this book for you know maybe 10 years I couldn't like and it scared me this vision of the future I could never quite understand what would cause society to become so isolated and dependent on a machine and so yeah it was really interesting to get that experience of coming back and going into lockdown and so I thought that I would delve into looking at social media a lot more just to see how it would make me feel in comparison to what I'd just come from. And yeah, I found it very depressing. <laughs> Particularly images of people kind of just gazing at themselves like and making videos because it felt like their eyes were looking through you and it made you feel more, what well, made me feel more isolated and I had to stop looking at it after, yeah, after a while, it was a bit, yeah. Yeah, 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 and so so part of that, these sort of, these protective masks, I guess, that, that can sort of shield you from, from that, you know, from that sort of dead gaze of someone looking into a camera, and then, you know, also alongside that, you, you brought together a lot of other masks which bring together text and, and other imagery as well. 
Yeah, so this one I did in response to like the face filters. Wow, that is such an amazing, totally analog digital work. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so, so the masks I made as part of After have varying levels of transparency to, so the bonnet, you can't see the wearer's face at all, but the wearer can see the outside world. So that's like kind of the first most protective mask and then you get the more transparent ones when you're more like adjusting to being out in the real world you still want to modify your appearance um <laughs> yeah it's really interesting that idea of you know taking digital ideas of of filters and actually transferring those through quite an you know, a, a very handmade, uh, totally non-digital process of making these incredible masks and embroideries. Another example of extreme embroidery. Yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is, which is incredible. Mm. But, uh, and I know it's funny when we're talking about a work which is sort of at, at, a, at a distance for us, but I think it might just be a, a, a good opportunity to unpack some more imagery that is in the, the work after, because it's really, you know, an incredible thing, which is like a palimpsest. Like you said, it has all of the sort of the dust and the dirt and the, 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 the physical um, sort of sweat and marks of your journey, but then it um, accrues meaning and stories as you as you go as you as you meet people along the way and so it becomes sort of coordinates of a of a of a journey as well that I guess you can read immediately when when you look at that yeah but as a whole what I feel about it is that it's kind of like because there's kind of a spherical center point where all the that's where I began with two people hugging and and so for me, it feels like kind of the world in um, like, not, well, kind of coming apart, like it's like this explosion. Like, I'm, so I've really been trying to create a lot of energy in the piece and everything is kind of connected to everything else and trying to cling on to each other at the same time. And... Yeah, so I guess like having that feeling of explosion to then reform and have some sort of order and connection. Yeah, so so there's lots of um, elements of nature in there, and and the way I was perceiving my landscape in New Zealand, where I was seeing, you know, the mountain, the Rocky Mountains, like these creatures and. Yeah, just having a different relationship to my environment by yeah seeing the characters in it in the in the landscape instead of it just being a inanimate <laughs> um, yeah inanimate space or yeah yeah and there's lots of you know references to spin effects and fire and then characters that appear like your your dog yeah and, and other sort of references to conversations that you've that you've had along yeah. the way and ultimately they're all sort of coded like you said yeah. or using using um floriography or the language of of and the symbolism of plants yeah to, you know to i guess to to codify that that journey as well yeah yeah and some of the people i've met are also 
in there but with symbols and because they had an impact on my journey and I might have learnt something from them or it might have influenced um, my behaviour or like where I was going or how fast I was going um, and so they became an important part of the story of the journey but yeah I think that's what's really nice though like you can depending on who you're talking to you can like express as much or as little that you want about the true meaning of all the, the symbols inside the work yeah yeah it becomes an, an incredible sort of journal of, yeah. um, or an, an album, really, as well, of those episodes and encounters. And yeah. you know, it must be incredibly personal to look at it and just be able to sort of see a sort of stretch of time depicted yeah. and, and also something that is mimicked in the, the, the long durational labour of making it as well. Yeah. Like you said that sometimes you would make sketches uh, or notes during the, the day um, yeah. through drawing and then, you know, that would later be translated through a much slower process and yep. that sometimes you're like, oh, I've got way too much today. This is going to take a really long time to yeah. embroider this. But, yep. you, know, it's a, you know, it's a really incredible work um, and, you know, it makes me sort of think of the, you know, a quote or um, a book that Lucy Lippard wrote about 10, 10 years ago, which is called The Lure of the Local and this idea of how do you conjure a sense of place in a multi-censored society Society, you know, something which has, you know, a lot of high hopes in terms of what art can do or what it can suggest in terms of alternative ways of, of living and being and connecting with, with the world and with slower processes of, of looking, of making, of, of being. So, you know, congratulations. It's, you know, it's such an evocative work um, and such an incredible diary of also a major, major time in, in the 21st century as well. Know, made through the pandemic so it becomes a work which is utterly contemporary you know contempo which is like of its time so congratulations thank and you thank you so much for mm -hmm. sharing so much about the secret work I guess as well <laughs> um, we have a few minutes just to ask some questions because I'm sure I'm sure there are some questions for the audience and it's great to to have you here such a talented local artist and thank you for bringing in so many amazing examples of your work I thought it's so tactile and so haptic your work that it's wonderful to just see your incredible capacity with embroidery and, and stitching. Do we have any questions from the audience? Thank you, that was wonderful. Um, I'm just wondering when you're on your two-month hike and after your seven-hour hike at the end of the day, how much time would you spend doing the embroidery? It depends on lots of things. So, of course, not every day was seven hours of walking because with New Zealand, the weather is always changing. So some days it would be raining, so I would spend, you know, two days inside, like, because, you know, they've got the hut system over there um, in a hut just embroidering all day and feeling an urgency that I need to get as much done while the weather's bad yeah so yeah it changed mm. on levels of tiredness and thanks for sharing um, I was wondering how did you plan how, how much material you needed as in the actual cottons and or did you improvise with other materials you found as you're along the way yeah, I don't, I don't plan very much. I 
this, the size of it was very random. I don't know why I, I just thought that was a good size. And then in terms of threads, I brought some with me. And then, so the way I structured my time was, you know, hiking for a week and then going out for supplies. And so I would restock either in op shops or some embroidery shops for more colours but I tend to use all the colours, so I didn't have to plan too much in that regard, yeah. Great. Well, now is probably a great time afterwards to come and have a look at the works that Cassia has brought in and to have a closer look at, um, at the work after in the, in the gallery behind us. If you want a chance to see more of Cassia's work, uh, she worked on an amazing uh, collaboration. There's a wonderful film online about it with uh, Dave Lassett, which, will be, which is called How to Live Deliberately, which is on uh, display at Country Arts and will be for apparently the next five years. Yeah. Yeah, so that's great, a long durée. And, uh, and also, one of the interesting things coming out of this is that you've started to teach your learning how to make film and oh, yeah. working on a major film project after this, which is also really exciting. So it will be wonderful to see how you weave all of those things in together between your masks, you know, sort of folkloric sto storytelling and, um, and something which is also in a resolutely digital um, format. Yeah. But... It's such a pleasure to talk to you about your incredible practice and thank you so much for bringing in so much and sharing it with us. So a round of applause for Cassia. Thanks. Thank you.